Hi everyone and welcome to the show in partnership with the awesome Najahi events. Now I want you all to stop and imagine just for a moment. Imagine you're 21 years old and you pack your car up and you sneak away from your home never to return. Now imagine that that home wasn't a normal home. Imagine living in a cult and you were escaping to live a life you never thought you could have. This story seems like something from a movie, but for my next guest, it was her reality. After facing abuse and depression while growing up in a cult, she saved herself by writing. She began writing blogs for money and was able to save enough to escape. Her incredible story was told for the first time last year in her memoir, Woman Rising. Now she's a serial entrepreneur, an author, an advocate of creating exceptional content that leads to real growth. In 2021, she successfully exited her seven-figure agency, Express Writers, and today she leads The Content Hacker, where she equips students to learn real-life content skills. She also ghostwrites, consults, and writes and publishes her own books every year. As a gifted storyteller, I'm sure she will share with us an incredible story. Please welcome somebody who's got guts like you wouldn't believe, the incredible Julia McCoy. Julia, thank you so much for coming to join us on the show. It's a story that I've been wanting to tell, and I apologize before we start that I'm probably going to dig into some stuff that you've shared before, but for the benefit of all the people here in Dubai and the UK that listen to this show, I think what you have to say and the journey that you've been on and what you did afterwards is really significant. I think it will resonate with people and it will leave them with some some learnings and some maybe some positivity that things can be achieved no matter what you go through. Thank you, Spencer, for hosting the show and what you're doing on the show. I think it's amazing. You're bringing these stories to life through this channel. I can't wait to subscribe hearing what you told me about your heart in the show. (laughs) And I'm just happy to be here and be a part of it. Right. So let's get stuck in. Typically what we do um, in any story, we naturally want to go back to the beginning. But what I'd like to do is to actually start where you built a business and then sold it. Okay, mm. and then maybe we'll lean into the rest of the journey. Now, now everyone knows because I've just said it in the intro that you know you you built a company and then you sold it, you exited it for a considerable amount of money. So, congratulations! Hopefully enough to buy as many handbags, houses, cars, and all that kind of stuff that you wanted to and secure yourself for life. <laughs> what did it feel like when you exited? Did you get did you get a big check one day, or were you paid in stages? How did it work? It was one lump sum payment that came in. That's how it arrived. But it took weeks and months, of course, to get there. But when it came in, you know, it was me looking at that number going, wait, am I going to wake up and this is just a dream? (laughs) You know, so there was some of that for sure. But even better than the money is the freedom that comes with the exit. You know, now I get to write more books. I'm launching a fiction series. I get to do so much more of what I love. So I'm really excited about that and where I'm headed. Okay. So how, how, do, you, how do you sell a company? What goes on with that? Did somebody approach yes. you one day and say, this is pretty good. We want a piece of this. Or did you sit, go out there and tout the business? What happened? Yeah. So we started getting pitched about three, four years ago. And this is a business I started in 2011. I was 19 years old. And I was just like, I'm going to 
see if I can make money writing, see if this goes anywhere. And three months after I made that decision, I had so much work. So I was like, okay, I'm going to start a business called Express Writers. Didn't think it would last more than a year. And in that 10 year span, we sold it this year, it turned 10 years old. We were able to launch the industry's first e-commerce content shop for writing services. So we were able to do some pretty industry leading things. And uh, by year seven, we started getting pitched a lot. <clears throat> People were asking me, do you want to sell your agency? Do you want to sell your website? Investors were knocking at the door. And the way I do things is everything is bootstrapped, self-funded. It's just, I like being in control. I don't like board members telling me what to do. So, <laughs> so naturally I was like, no to an investor, but the thought and realizing that so many people saw our business as that valuable made me think, what if we did sell? And then um, the other reason that just made me decide to go ahead and do it was, you know, managing that many people is very hard. Our team had grown to 100 people. We had people that still, this is a problem I never solved, people were still not who I thought they were. You know, we would hire someone and then it would turn out that they were someone we couldn't trust, or it would turn out they would just drop the ball and leave you hanging high and dry. And here I am putting out all the fires, you know, so that's agency life for you. And that year, year seven, I was like, you know, I think I want to send in my own resignation letter so, <laughs> to my own company. <laughs> so uh, we started out by pretty much just Googling, you know, business broker. And we hired someone that was local to us here in Austin, Texas. And he was not the right broker. And we should have seen the red flag sooner. But we didn't we hung on to him for about two years, unfortunately, and the deals he brought fell through, he didn't have the right contacts. And he didn't know how to properly position and sell our business with the value it contained. So I was, you know, really getting frustrated, especially when he told us, after our income really dropped during COVID, we had one month where we lost half of it in 2020. He saw that and he was like, you know, I don't know if I can sell your business. And I was like, wait a minute, like we still have so many valuable things inside of our team. So I didn't take that for an answer. And I looked up a brokerage that specialized in selling online businesses. And that's when things changed. So I found a brokerage called Quiet Light Brokerage. I'll give them a shout out. And they had a list of about 50,000, 30 to 50,000 business owners, actually more like investors slash business owners that were ready. They'd been vetted. They were ready to buy your business. So imagine that many people and you're telling that list, here's a very valuable business for sale. So when they launched our business, we were their hottest listing. They said almost for that entire year, we had so many increase. And the beauty of that was we had a lot of people to pick from. And we actually had our full price offer come in for the three to four times multiplier. So when that full price offer came in, you know, it was just, it was a no brainer for my husband and I, we kind of do this together for us just to say, yes, let's do it. And the buyers, you know, we weren't a hundred percent sure in the beginning that they were the right ones because they weren't necessarily writers, content people. And that's kind of what I was dreaming of, but Incidentally, going with our gut really worked out because today, what we see as they take the reins and take over, there really could be no better buyers. They are taking action, they're leading the team, and already I think they're making better decisions. What was the name of the company that helped you? Quiet Light Brokerage. Quiet Light Brokerage. And how long did they work with you to secure the exit? 
It was about four, a four month process total. Four months. And when you did the value, when the valuation came in, did they do a valuation for you? They did. Yes. They helped us structure that. Okay. And when they, when they put that valuation on the table and said, this is what we think it's worth based upon everything you shared with us. Is that similar to what you thought it was worth or is it higher or lower? It was, I would say it was similar. You know, I had some people try to encourage me to go for higher because they thought we had technology we could patent, but really we didn't. It was built on WordPress. There's, there's tricky parts there where you can't really patent technology. If it's not built on a platform, you don't own. Um, It could be argued otherwise, but you know, we were happy. It was a number that I had wanted for about seven. When I was dreaming of an exit seven years ago, I was like, I wrote down a number, right? That was the number they said we could get. And it was, what was the number? What was the number? (laughs) Everyone, everyone, everyone listening right now is like screaming at the screen. Okay. Or they're screaming down their phones. What's that number? How much did you sell it for? (laughs) Well, we shall go there then. (laughs) (laughs) It was a little over 1 million. Wow. And that had all started from you on your own, just starting at home doing it yourself. Exactly. I was broke. All I had in the bank at the beginning was $75. (laughs) Amazing. So you took nothing apart from 75 bucks, an idea, a lot of hard work and determination, and you ended up picking up a check for a million dollars when you exited a business. How proud were you? How proud were you that day that that happened? It, exactly. It was a sense of so much accomplishment. You know, it's one thing to build something that you see people like, but it's quite another thing to sell that for that sum of money and realize people out there value what you've built that much. You know, <laughs> that is a but great feeling. Tell me about the, the, the nostalgia and the emotions that you went through as well. So there must have been elation for, for a check coming through, but that was your baby, you know, you'd grown that business yes. from scratch. And so how did it feel when you let it go? And then the next day or the next week, it was like, oh, what do I do today? Right, right. Well, I had been, you know, I, I have a second business, the content hacker that I've kind of been putting off that I really wanted to devote my time to. And it's coaching, teaching, consulting you how to be a good content creator, how to make profit. So I when I woke up and realized this is all I get to do, it kind of felt like a kid again in a sandbox. It felt like the early, early days for me. It's almost like I went back in time. I lost 10 years um, because I felt so excited again to get up and really, I mean, it's not that I hated my agency. It was just getting to be so much work and so much of the same thing, the same problems because it was people focused. Um, But, you know, that four month process of selling was definitely The emotions involved at the beginning, there was a period I would say of grief where I was like sitting down to eat dinner and it hit me like I am not going to have this company anymore that I've put all my heart, soul, sweat into and all the people that I really like working with now, I'm not going to work with them anymore. I'm not going to be their boss. And so like there was some, you know, it's important to allow yourself to feel that you know, feel your emotions, as strange as it sounds or feels at times. So I allowed myself to feel grief, cry, kind of mourn, I'm giving this up. And I loved it for so long. And then after I acknowledged that grief, it was the next stage was a lot of joy, because I get to get out of this and really do what I love. (laughs) I, I had I had a similar experience. I sold my shareholding in a business in 2012. And I 
I, I was one of the founders of the business. The, the business continued. I sold my equity and I agreed to go on gardening leave for a year. At the beginning of that, I was like, hold on a minute. I can go see my friends in South America. I can see my friends in the States. I can go see my friends in Canada. I can go see my friends in France. This is going to be amazing. Mm. All this time to go and catch up with all these people who I haven't spent time with because I've been busy working, building, etc. That lasted six weeks. <laughs> and after six weeks, because I wasn't allowed to work, I was like, what do I do mm. now? And it, yeah. actually, it actually, and it was the worst decision I ever made, agreeing to that. Because it caused me severe depression because I had, there was nothing I could do. I just literally had to do nothing, you know, spend time with the kids. And, and when you don't have routine and structure and order mm-hmm. to your day, it can lead you into a very dark place. So the fact yes. that you had, you had Content Hacker on, on, on the go or in the works meant that you had something that you could move into after that, I suppose, which made it, made it an easier transition. Yes, that's so true. And I've had people ask me that, you know, don't come from where you and I come from. They've asked me, so are you going to take a year off? And that's their first thought is like all that time off. And I just, I couldn't even wrap my head around that because I would miss what I do. (laughs) Yeah, I totally agree with you. It's mad when you think about it. Okay. It's interesting that you had that business. I think one of the most difficult things to do if you're in the, the world of social media and whether it's email lists, uh, your content creator, one of the most difficult things I find to do is to write good quality content. Mm, yes, it is the toughest problem. Mm. Now I know yes. because you, you know you get all these emails coming through for various people you subscribe to that you don't know how you subscribe to, and and I read all <laughs> of them, and some of them mm-hmm. are bang on the money. They're just brilliant, and I'm like, you've nailed this. And a lot of them, I'm like. You just wasted 30 seconds of my life. Why did I just read that? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Do you, do you, do do you, from your many, many years of experience, knowing way more than I do about it, do you think that's a fair assessment? Oh, absolutely. And whenever I started out 10 years ago, I had no idea. I had no idea, first of all, that content would be what it is today and that content was headed there. So when I started, I was like, okay, I'm going to write. You know, I had these clients come to me that had a terrible, a terrible mentality of how they should treat their writer. It was very strange. It was like writing was the least most important thing. And that little gimmick, that backlink, that quick hack, that was way more important. Julia, just write. Here you go. Here's a little bit of money. And so the more I wrote and the more I realized how important writing is, it was just amazing to see that. And today... In in the 2020s, you know, last year over the pandemic, content consumption doubled, if not almost tripled. We saw Google searches go from 3.6 billion a day to almost 7 billion searches a day. And that kind of velocity usually takes two years. It took one month. March of 2020 is when everything just because everyone's at home. You know, what else are they going to do? So content suddenly became vastly, vastly more important. And it also incidentally became harder to find writers because suddenly here on one hand, we have all this content consumption. People are looking for something to engage their senses. They're dulled, they're bored, they're sitting at home. And then on the other hand, we have this flood of workers entering the market. They're Googling how to make money writing from home, that keyword, it tripled in search volume. I was watching the trends, I was just, wow, that keyword search. So we have this flood of people that don't have the skill set. 
And it was interesting because back then I was still hiring for express writers and we hire, we go through thousands of candidates in a month. And we saw our percentage of people that we were able to hire for writing go down. It was already low, but it went down to like half a percent. And it was just this flood of people that thought they could write, but had no knowledge that this is an actual skill you have to learn and build. For any client to say, I'll pay you thousands, I'll pay you hundreds for that skill set, which clients are paying in content marketing, which is a $400 billion industry. In four more years, it'll be 600 billion. The top outsourced task is content creation. It's the hardest. It's one of the most difficult because now you have specialties, you have people, brands, marketers looking for that specialty industry experience. It's like if you're going to write an article about how to do a Facebook ad strategy, you actually have to know how to run one and you have to be able to write. You know? So that is difficult to find, but clients are willing to pay so much money for that. And that's... When you think about the skills that people need, and you know, I've got two daughters who are at university at the moment, and one of them is studying graphic design and communications, and the other one is studying uh, film, but specifically for social. And mm. they, they both chose those. And I'm really pleased that they chose something that is going to be applicable in the future. Yeah, A lot of people don't realize how applicable a lot of this evolution is going to be to their lives in the future. And yes, do you agree with that? Yeah. A hundred percent. In fact, it's why my latest book that came out this February, this year has gone so fast this February, 2021. Um, my latest book that came out, it's not one of those behind me. It's called skip the degree, save the tuition. And I was not going to write it for another four years because I really wanted to do a ton of research, but I escalated it because of what we saw in the pandemic, which I had no idea was going to happen. And I was just like, a lot of these degrees in the academia side of things, and your daughters are probably experiencing something different if they're going for, you know, something that is going to produce specifically like a social media skill set. That's great. You know, I encourage that. But a lot of people that are going for a master's in fine arts, a master's in writing, they do not graduate knowing how to write a blog. They don't. In fact, they have something they have to unlearn because essay writing, Elon Musk said it himself. He's like, essays are the quickest way to kill attention span on the internet. And I was like, Elon even knows good content. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I just want to say on behalf of all of us here in Dubai, that congratulations on creating a business, building it, getting your sleeves rolled up, getting stuck in mm. and getting to a Thank point you. where you can sell that business. Because many, I would say most, never get to that point. They never yes. reach that point of being able to do it. They end up with something that ticks over or is all consuming and they can never find their way out. And the fact that you're able to do that, hat taken off. Thank you. Appreciate that. Let's talk about what happened before the happy ending. We have a, a young lady who I've just introduced as someone who at 21 years old packed her car and left home never to return again. And your story really resonates with me, but for everybody that's listening and watching right now, take us back to growing up and what life was like for you. It feels like that side of my life is, is another version of me. It's so funny to go back there. Um, <clears throat> but I grew up in a fundamentalist Christian cult. You know, I didn't know it growing up, but of course, now that I'm out, I escaped in the middle of the night, like you said, at 21 years old, packed up a car. Now that I'm out, I see 
at just how crazy it was. When you're in it, you're brainwashed, you're being told lies. And especially when you're the daughter of the creator of this cult, you know, it's very hard to even see what you're living in. Uh, but since birth, you know, we had to wear long dresses, couldn't wear pants. We had all kinds of rules around the color of our clothing, couldn't wear open toed shoes. The list went on and on. And um, the older I got, the more severe and the more mentally oppressive these rules got. When I was very young, um, up until my early teens, there was a lot of physical abuse and borderline sexual abuse. And then, I mean, I don't even want to use the word borderline. <laughs> I've learned that too since. It's like, call it what it is, right? Truth. Um, and when I was making money for the first time, my dad was very excited and encouraged me to do that because he was able to take that money, use it to fund his church. So at one point I had up to 80% of what I was making being taken away. And it was basically a guilt trip. You know, it was me writing the check, but it was them saying, if you don't do this, you're not a good daughter and you shouldn't be living in our house and things like that. So the mental oppression was real. And at 19, I had a, I had a breaking point. I still remember where it was like, darkness was in my mind and it was so dark that I I was wishing that I would that I was dead instead of alive and I never like I don't want anyone else to experience that I would hate to you know I know I won't go back there I'm in a place today where I just know life will never be that bad because life is not life is beautiful but I had that moment at 19 it's crazy to see that tell give me an idea of a day in the life Let's, let's take you, uh, I don't know, 12, 13 years old. What, what's, what's morning to evening look like? I have. So I published a memoir on my life in 2020. It's called Woman Rising. And in the appendixes, I have what's called my daily rule. And it's something that my dad had us, my sister and I, write out when we were teens. And it's it's every 15 minutes we were supposed to write down what we were supposed to do. So our day started around 5.30, 5am. We had to start with theological readings. So we had that written down 15 minutes of this book, 15 minutes of this book, and then 15 minutes of singing these uh, music and lyrics from the 1500s. So we did that. That was how our morning started. And then it was family time. It was which was family prayer and more devotions. And then it was family breakfast. And all these family times were like so different from what I now know is real family time. You know, it was very much dad leading a sermon that's the whole time. And oftentimes it was him pointing his finger at his daughters saying, here's something you did wrong. And here's why it's not biblical. And that was family time for us. We, that was what we were used to. And then throughout the day, we had dedicated 30-minute gaps to more theological readings, prayer, very extensive periods for a couple hours at a time on the weekends where we had to do more of that. And we were always watched. And there were some times when, our, when we went upstairs to have prayer and reading, our doors were locked behind us from the outside and we couldn't leave to make sure that we complied, to make sure that we were under that strict control, dad wanted us to know like his thumb is on top of us at all times. Like we can't move without his permission. And that was still happening when I was 21. You know, I was of the legal age to say, Hey, this, you can't do this to your daughters anymore. But 
I didn't realize that for years, like it took me till 21 to realize, okay, you know, I, I don't think this is okay. And now I realize near neither was it legal in any way, you know, he was committing crimes. So that's a day in the life. It was, it's crazy how different how, that was. How many people were part of the cult? So at one point it was, it was up to, I want to say 20 to 25 people. But then my dad excommunicated everyone but his family. <laughs> so then it was just us for uh, most of the time. And how many of you in the family? Uh, four total. Mom, dad, four kids. Yes, yes, exactly. So, you, so six you have, total. You have brothers or sisters that are still part of it? I have a sister that I escaped with. So she and I, I got her out. She was my older sister. And she kind of kept me strong. I was like, let's escape. And she was like, okay, let's do it. And then when I had moments of guilt, because I was like, you know, they've brought us up, they've raised us, maybe we should stick around. She was like, oh no, we're getting out. But I had to leave behind two little siblings and my parents had this 18 year gap between us. So when I left, you know, I was here, I was 21. My little brother and sister were like six, five and six years old. So I, I had no choice but to leave them with, you know, it would be a crime I committed if I tried to take them, but that was heartbreaking to have to do, to leave them behind, to suffer the brunt now of his punishments and fury and these lectures and mental oppression. And now they're approaching, uh, we're nine years later, they're approaching their mid to late teens. And I can only hope that, you know, one day they get out like I did. I've tried everything. I've called the state, I've called the state's authorities, I've called CPS, and there's laws in Pennsylvania that restrict me from doing anything, even appearing as a witness and saying, here's what he did and here's what I know he's currently doing, because that's my dad. He gets crazier as the years go on. The, the Pennsylvania is famous for the Amish communities. Yes. Was there anything similar to that? No, there wasn't. It was very strange how we were we were among the Amish, the Mennonite, and they looked like us because they had long dresses, they had they were dressed up. But my dad was like, those are the people that we shun too. You know? So he didn't talk to them, he didn't talk to what he called sinners, which were people like you and me, normal people. And it was very strange. It was almost like he created his own little version of a very fundamentalist cult, which was going back to long dresses, how people dressed in the 1500s, 1600s, and the very strange doctrines back then that men had around their wives, which was you're pretty much bred to be a baby raiser. And that's it. Like education, you can't even pursue because that might lead you astray from your calling. Was your, was, I want to go down a bit deeper into this. Was your dad brought up in a similar environment? Was, was yes born. this is generational yes yes so his father and his grandfather were the same way inclined exactly yes there's a it, bigger go on. there's a bigger branch of this yeah in north carolina that my uncle still currently runs and that's where my dad came from so there's like another 200 250 people on a college campus way deep in the south that are also locked up in this same absolute crap. Have you have you tried to contact mom? I've reached out a couple times. <clears throat> I reached out by mail, email, mail got rejected. They wrote 
with a Sharpie rejected giant letters and um, email. I sent an email to her just to tell her I loved her. I think four months after I left and she sent an email back. That was very, very cold. She stopped calling herself my mom. It was very strange the way it was worded. And I'm, I'm a hundred percent sure dad wrote that and signed it as her. Yeah, so I still wonder what is she what does she think? I know she searches my name, like something just tells me. She's probably looking me up to see what is going on with my life. And of course I'm all over Google, so <laughs> it's easy to see. And was she was you was your mum from that environment as well? Or did your mum meet your dad and get sucked into it? That's what happened. She met my dad and got completely sucked in. She went to my dad's father's college, this place that has lots of people locked up in it. And pretty much when she stepped foot on that campus, the door was shut behind her and she was in it. And it's very hard to get out once you're in. And her family's normal. Like I've actually been able to meet my grandma on her side, my aunt, they're all amazing people. And they all tried to stay in touch with her, tried to help her. But, you know, she treated them like the evil witch once she married dad, because that's what he made her do. Tell me about your relationship with religion. So when I left, <clears throat> I left my dad a letter. And in that letter, I remember saying, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with me in church. I may never go back to church again. And the first few weeks out, I definitely didn't. I was like, no church. <laughs> yeah, Church had burned me for 21 years. <laughs> um, but I had the... Um, God really pointed me in the right direction and he brought me back to him to where today I know, you know, there's a God, I believe in him and I have a relationship with Jesus. I read the Bible and it's completely different than what I grew up with. And, um, it's interesting because like, I see his hand on every step of my journey. When I was escaping, I met my husband. Um, it was funny. I, he hired me to write for him. And he was the first person I told what life was really like in the cult. So he was the first person that heard that. Very strange, telling a stranger that had just hired you. But I, there was a connection there. There was something there where I was like, this is somebody that I think one day I'm going to love pretty soon. And it was very strange. I, I always follow my gut, like to a letter. And that's really, that's been critical. That's been a key in my life is following my gut. So the next days, the next few weeks is when I escaped and I told him, I'm going to come see you. And the next day when I got out of my dad's house, the next day I drove down 900 miles from Pennsylvania to Missouri to go meet him. It was great. It was a fresh start. You know, I got out of that terrible place, got away from all the landmarks, highly recommend doing that. So you don't have to see, you know, reminders of how you grew up. And then he was exactly who he said he was. He wasn't some serial killer in a basement. Thank the, thank the Lord. <laughs> the reason I say that is that I, I come from a, a family where one side of my family is deeply religious. And my grandparents were uh, missionaries in the Second World War. Oh, sorry, mm. after the Second World War. And they were in Nigeria, in West Africa. And my dad and his two sisters were born in Nigeria. And wow. they, lived, they lived there in the bush while they were, they were both doctors, my grandparents. And what he lived in the bush with them uh, until he was 10 years old. And then he was sent back to the UK uh, for boarding school. But when he went to boarding school, he was much younger than the next youngest kid at boarding school. So he was two and a half years younger. So he was 10. The youngest before uh, after that was 12 and a half. And then the rest were much older. 
And so he experienced mm. at boarding school bullying, abuse, mm. and a real negative and, and sad experience that he doesn't talk about very often. And it was very dark for him, but it, it made him turn against his mm. uh, relationship with God. And my grandmother, until she, until she passed away, deep, deeply, deeply religious, my, my dad's brothers, and, uh, my dad's two sisters, sorry, and their families, they're missionaries themselves. It was just my dad. And he had such an uncomfortable relationship because of what he experienced that he couldn't see the good in God. And so mm. it's really interesting wow. for me to hear you go from that real extreme experience to mm. taking a break and then realizing that he is out there and he does do good and guess what? He's looking over me. So I'm really, mm. really interested about that. Do you, did you think when you came out, you know, you had that break, did you say to yourself, I know we just kind of like glanced across it and you were like, yeah, no God for a while. Like, oh, no church, sorry, for a while. <laughs> did, did, did your faith change? At the time, I would say I really didn't know what I thought. But looking back, I think I always knew he would lead me back to him because there's no way I could be the person I am today. Like I am a happy, joyful person with zero depression, zero. I've gotten over like extreme anxiety to the point of speaking in my industry's biggest stage, something I never thought I would ever do because I thought I would die first. <laughs> and I did not die. <laughs> and I'm about to do it again a few more times because I've been invited places. And I just, you know, I, I always give that to God. And I'm like, this is beyond me. Here you go. <laughs> and he, he comes through every time, every time. And that really has restored my faith. But, you know, in the process of escaping, leaving, it was really good that I had a voice like my husband in my life. And back then when I met him, we got married three months later. So it was like immediate. We knew we loved each other. Um, but he was there and he was like, okay, you don't want to go to church? Three months. <laughs> Shut the yes. front door. No way. Yes, we knew. It was just like, we're going to get married. And it was like, you know, it was just gut instinct. Like this is something we both feel for each other and we're just gonna get married and this is it this is our life okay it was so really you, good. you gotta admit that's bloody unusual for that to happen most people would say okay yeah you're amazing i think you're fantastic yeah i'm gonna marry you but let's get to know each other first right yes i know and looking back i'm really surprised how well it worked out because i had some moments where i'm like should i try to you know spend two years getting to know myself first <laughs> <laughs> when, when your kids become teenagers and this kind of stuff gets discussed, they'll have so much leverage on you. <laughs> my, my kids, I don't know, and I got married after three months when they started falling in love with their boyfriends. They were like, well, you did it, Dad, so why are you saying I can't do it? <laughs> <laughs> I'll be like, that was different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it was a different time back then. You have to understand, darling. <laughs> exactly 2011 such different times <laughs> <laughs> we were different generations we we're worlds apart that's how things used to work in those days <laughs> <laughs> the olden days <laughs> I, I, I love i love that you're a that, that you're such a happy and joyful person i'm sure some people could say well, you know you sell a company for a million dollars why would you not be but the, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> shut up you're swimming in cash what have you got to complain about <laughs> but um but the, the, the reality is what you went through, people will try and understand, but could never really understand because they could never really feel that uh, 
amount of oppression and not only oppression mm. your dad's your dad when you're a girl or life experience with my daughters your dad's your hero mm-hmm. you know you know daddy's girls you know dad dad's everything and yeah and so you didn't have that relationship you didn't have a, a dad that was everything you had a dad that that treated you uh, well, at least ungodly, and I would say, in <laughs> m- many respects, much worse than that. And it's like that—that that for me is really sad, because hmm. I've been really lucky. My parents got divorced when I was seven years old. My mum and my dad got remarried, and my mum married an incredible human being who's my stepfather. And I've got two dads. I've got two, hmm. my real dad and my stepdad, and I'm really close to both of them. And they're both my heroes. And they've both been, hmm. you know, even though I'm 51 years old, they're both very, very important in my life and, and always have been and so I just feel sad that that you didn't get a chance to have that kind of exposure to you know a good old dad yeah it's I've had moments where you know Father's Day Mother's Day both those days are I pretty much have to turn off social media <laughs> I can't see your happy father picture sorry <laughs> so it's you know it's definitely been moments where I wish I had that but at the same time, now that I've grown so much, nine years, you know, lots of therapy, going to sessions, uncovering disassociations, having my mind heal. As I look back, I see if I didn't do this alone and I didn't have the power of that story, I don't think what I have to say today and what who I am and what I can share with you would be as powerful. You know, and it's like, the story of Joseph in the Bible, he was like, what was meant to destroy me, kill me, annihilate me, God actually used to save other people's lives. And here's Joseph, like the second man in the kingdom. He was right next to the king. He was the king's right hand. And he was thrown in a water well at 17, 18 years old, meant to die at the bottom of that well. He went from that to that. And so it's amazing that you know, in the world, there are stories like this that exist, because it really paints a picture of what a human has the potential, the power that you have as a human to overcome adversity. It's just amazing what you can come back from. You're so right. You really are so right. You know, us Brits don't quite understand how this kind of stuff goes on in America. Because mm. we don't, we, it's not prevalent in the UK. I'm sure it exists, but it's not prevalent. You know, we we see you guys with guns, and we're like, why? Our police don't even have guns, let alone the, the security guards at, at shopping centres and stuff like that, or outside schools. It's wow. Just like, we don't get it. We're just like, why? Why? You know, and you know. We hear all the stuff in America from all the gun lobby people and what they say, and then and then we watch a TV show like Tiger King, and we <laughs> oh, see no. we we see <laughs> this crackpot of a guy who's you know keeping hundreds and hundreds of tigers in Oklahoma, and we're like, what goes on over there? You know, we we see the kind of the, the east and the west coast. You know, we see the Miamis and the New Yorks and the LA, San Diego, San Francisco, maybe, uh, maybe a bit of Seattle and, and maybe Vegas and then some ski resorts. And then all this stuff in the middle and all this kind of religious cults that go on and Tiger King and guns and it's just like, but you speak the same language as us and the sun rises and sets and you build businesses that you know, we use and so forth. And yet, yeah, we're like, what were they thinking? And so, you know, it's, it's hard for us to sometimes get our head around you know, how you mm. could go for something like that. 
when you look at other religions, uh, maybe, maybe take something like Scientology, and you look at that with, with your own eyes, from your own years of experience and the, the horrific situation you went through and where you are now, how do you, how do you look at something like that? Mm, yes, I, ha- I definitely have opinions <laughs> that, you know, I don't always keep to myself because it's hard to, it's hard not to speak up now when you have not only been a victim, but you've also came out the other side. And not only that, but you're thriving. Like I'm not just a survivor today. I'm thriving beyond the victimhood, beyond survival. So when you're in that place and then you see other people in a place of oppression, like Scientology is an oppressive religion. If you watch Leah, I think her last name is Ramini. I'm not sure. Yeah, Uh, Leah, that's it, Remini. If you watch her um, documentary, you know, she got really vulnerable and said what life was like in that Hollywood version of Scientology with Tom Cruise. It was terrible, the the way they were shunned. And it reminds me so much of what my dad did. Like, those are tactics. Those are tactics that cult leaders do who are extreme narcissists, power hungry, egotistical. They need to be on the throne and nobody else. And you're basically not allowed to speak unless it's with their approval. So that kind of oppression, I see it repeated so many patterns even when it comes to like some of the things happening in oppression with censorship of free speech and so many things that I never thought would have happened in a free society that are actually happening. And it's just, it's hard, you know, it's hard to stay silent. Interesting you say that because I live in Dubai and Dubai isn't a democracy. It's a kingdom. Okay. Mm. We have the United Arab Emirates is seven Emirates. One of them is Dubai. Each, each Emirate has essentially been put together 50 years ago this year where different tribes were given different lots of land, let's call it, to call as their own. Uh, the British were involved many, many years ago when the oil was found here before the United Arab Emirates was formed. And we don't have free speech here. There's not mm. freedom. Of, there's not freedom of the press. You're not allowed to photograph somebody and post it on social media without their approval. So let's say I took mm. a photograph of, or someone took a photograph of you and I. You were here in Dubai. We were out having dinner. You, my wife and your husband, the four of us, having dinner, and then they posted a picture, and it was us having dinner. And I didn't want you to. Well, I can I can go to the police and I can get that person in trouble for taking that picture. No kidding. Wow. Yeah. Let's not make sure we understand that there's this this country and this city has been my home for 16 years and it's a phenomenal place to live. So that's that's mm-hmm. the negative. Let me give you the positive. COVID came in March of last year. Everybody had to stay home. Everybody had to seek permission online to get an hour out to go shopping every day. And nobody was given an option. And so guess what? Everybody did what they were told. Then Dubai opened up much faster than any other country in the world. We were back to work. You guys, none of you guys, none of the UK. I, I wasn't in the UK for two years. I couldn't go there for two years. But we could do go about our business with masks, but go about our business anywhere and everywhere in Dubai six weeks after the coronavirus came in. When the vaccines came in, everyone was told, go take the vaccine. And, and their rules are, if you don't like it here and you don't like our rules... There is a door you can leave. It's not prison, <laughs> right? And it's a bit That's like good. a bit like Putin when he says, "You want to live in Russia? Speak Russian. You don't have to live mm. here, but you're not coming with your fundamental beliefs, and you're not coming thinking you're not going to speak the language. So just understand, mm-hmm. you're very, very welcome. If you understand, this is our country, and you're coming to live in our country. 
And I think yeah. it's the same, same here. There's the rules. So what, what happened is that, that this country exploded after COVID because the rest of the world was in lockdown for a huge amount of time and people couldn't live like that. And so the population mm-hmm. increased here. Property prices rocketed as people came in to live in this place. So there's lots of advantages wow. for that structure. And when mm. you talk about the negative of, of, of Scientology, I've watched all of those documentaries too. There's a great guy in the UK called Louis Theroux that spent a lot of time investigating it, lots of TV shows he's made about it. But also, two very dear friends of mine are Scientologists. And they're very successful people, okay? They're very well known in America. And when I first asked about it, I said, uh, it's Grant and Elena Cardone, okay? You may know who they are. Oh. And when I said to Grant, I was having dinner with Grant here in Dubai, I'm like, I want to learn about Scientology. I want to know what it's about. And he's like, Spencer, I'm not going to tell you. Go and find (laughs) out for yourself. And I went to the Church of Scientology in London. Just, I knew where it was. I just thought, I'm going to walk past one day and walk in and see what's going on in there. And I walked into this building and it was beautiful, incredible, uh, stunning. It was fantastic. And they gave me a guided tour of the, the processes and what they use and how they do it. And there are parts of it, parts of it that make sense. There are lots of parts of it that don't. And mm. it kind of, kind of takes me back to when my grandmother was always preaching the Bible to me. There are parts of it that make sense. And then there are parts of it that don't. Mm. And a lot of it is interpretation, isn't it? Mm. And so when I think of what you've gone through, that's someone in my mind that has taken a book of God and interpreted it in a way that they see fit to do so, regardless of, of the outcome. Badly, very badly. And other religious cults who obviously do exactly the same thing. So when I look at other religions, I wonder really, okay, is it the way that we interpret the writings and the, uh, and the theology around it? Or is it something, because when you're kids, you're forced into it, you know? If you're born in Pakistan, you're a Muslim because that's the best religion. If you're born into Thailand, you're a Buddhist because that's the best religion. If you're Italian, guess what? You're a Catholic because that's the best religion. And if you're from the UK, then your Church of England, because that's the best religion. And hey, guess what? Try, try, try being a Muslim or a Mormon or a Buddhist in Salt Lake City. You're probably going to struggle because you're going to need to be a Mormon because that's the best religion. <laughs> <laughs> it's true how that's been imbibed into cultures. You know, it's very true. I, I've been studying recently. It's like where you land in the world, where you're born has so much to do with just even having access to things whether it's religion, a preferred religion that you're just pushed towards, whether it's the right one or not, or the school you're brought up in, or what you learn about food, like there's just so many things and you can't control where you were born. You know, I always think like, what if I was born in the Middle East? What would that look like? What would that life look like? Or China? What would I look like today? I definitely I don't think I would be an entrepreneur. So there's definitely a lot that plays in you know, to being where born where you were, and you can move, you can make life better for yourself. But it's a lot harder if you're in a third world country. That's so interesting that you just said that. If your perception is if you were born in China, you might not have become or you probably wouldn't have become an entrepreneur. Right? I mean, Why? you can't even use Google. <laughs> I started with Google. <laughs> <laughs> but they have a Chinese version of Google. <laughs> <laughs> but you saw, you saw this is a great example actually you saw the other day 
WhatsApp, Facebook, and Instagram get the go out. Yeah, was it yesterday or the day before? Mm, you know, yeah. world's going into meltdown because people can't go on FB and, and Insta and stuff. Part of me thinks that's Mark Zuckerberg sat on his chair with a cat on his lap going, oh, I'm going to slag off and abuse Facebook, are you? Well, take this, <laughs> mofos. <laughs> this is coming right back at you. And um, it's almost like that, that, that power, if you think about it, the power that he had to impact other businesses for six hours and, yeah. and that the really rely, really rely on those channels, the power is almost like the people in Google. Look at the power they have to influence so if China says, yeah. we're, watch, we're watching you guys, you guys over in America, we're watching you, we'll have our own one, thank you very much. Part of me says, maybe that's okay. But I think that being an entrepreneur, I live here in Dubai, um, I've lived in 10 countries now. So I lived in Hong Kong, Thailand, Malaysia, West Africa, I lived in Brazil, in Italy, in Slovakia, in uh, Egypt, in Holland and here. And so mm. living in all those countries, what I've, what I've learned is that a lot of people look at, look at what's different about each other but what I try and look at is what's the same or what's similar. And at the mm. end of the day, we actually all want similar things. We want our family to be healthy. We want to live in a safe environment. We want to be successful in business. We want to be able to, be able to pay uh, our bills and live a comfortable life. Nobody wants war. Nobody go gets up and says, you know what, war's good for my family. You know, mm-hmm. the average person doesn't. You know, we, we actually, there's more, that, more that's similar about us than is different. Now, okay, Chinese people like certain food and, and American people don't like American food because they like pizza, which is Italian, and they like Indian, which is Indian, and Chinese, which is Chinese, and so on. But when, when you think about it, we're very similar. We might laugh at different things, but we're very similar. Yeah. And I think the more we look at what's similar about us, the more we identify what's the same about us, I think that's, that's the better chance we've got of bringing us together rather than seeing us as different. Yes, so true. I've had the opportunity to really see that with what I do at the Content Hacker. Because it's, you know, I basically you do Google search and there I am. And I have people from Kenya, people from England, and then lots of people, of course, from America, but people from all over. Singapore was a recent one that find me, hire me, pay me to coach them. And then in the end, they're all looking for the same skill set. But it's really interesting how they interpret it, what I see in their homework. And I just love that. It's, it's so fascinating. But um, the people that come from Kenya often, it's funny, they often try to barter me into a relationship that doesn't include payment. <laughs> you know, so there, there are some difficulties you have getting started. And I see that my heart goes out to people that are trying to be entrepreneurs in Kenya, because I've met some really smart people that I think have more grit than some of the people I've met right here in my own home country. <laughs> that have yeah, the means. <laughs> But you know what, it's inbred in their culture to barter. It's not inbred in yours or mine. Yeah. You know, if, if you say to me, Spence, it's $500 an hour. It's like, oh, okay. You know, and I might go back and sit down with a colleague or a wife, my wife and go, bloody hell, that's expensive. But, <laughs> but I'm not going to sit down and, 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 you know, I might ask for a 10% discount or something, but I'm not going to play the barter game. But it's embedded in their culture. Um, right. Where, where it's, it's just not us. And you can, you know, you go to the markets in any of these countries and everything is about the haggle. It's about the haggle. And so... I think it's important to understand that. What I do, because I get lots of inquiries for what I, what I help people with as well. And my inquiries come through Instagram, Spence, can you mentor me? Can you coach me? Can you this? Can you that? And my first response is, this is how much it costs. 
Mm-hmm. That's where I start there, and then it just eliminates <laughs> all the people. You know, you oh, oh wow, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't realise it was going to be that. And I'm like, okay, I'm probably not the guy for you. This could be a good person for you. You could do this, and so it just saves a lot of time being in a place where you get like you do with the people sometimes from Kenya. Like, we want your services. We think you're great. Come and coach us. But can I buy you lunch? All <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, oh, I won't pay the bills. Too bad. <laughs> so just before we finish, because I'd like, I'd like to get this wrapped up. I know you're unconscious of your time. Do me a favor. Your, your new business that you've got at the moment, what, what do you actually teach, okay? And what can people learn from working with you? Yes, yes. So at The Content Hacker, um, the best way I like to put it is I equip people that are looking to learn marketing with real life content skills. So it's not just, you know, you're enrolling in a course, you pay me some money, and then you're watching some videos. No, no, no. Like what we've done at The Content Hacker is we've produced courses that have you actually learning the skill. So one of my top courses this year has been a course I launched over the pandemic called the Unlearn Essay Writing Course. And I launched it because I was like, okay, before you learn online writing, you need to kick that bad habit of essay writing. And it's ingrained in our system when we leave college. It's just the AP style. And there's some grammar rules you have to actually learn to break, to write a click-worthy headline, to write a hook that's going to keep people scrolling. That's what clients pay for. That's what they want to see in their writer. So in that course, the first lesson, really, I've had people that take the course, they post in the student group an hour later, they're like, I was not expecting this, Julia. My world is shaken. (laughs) The first first lesson is like, here's everything you know about writing. And here's what, here's how many of those are missed. And I just shatter, 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 shatter. And then we rebuild from the ground up. Here's actually how to structure a sentence that people are going to read and not snooze fest on like you and those emails. So that course has been, has produced a lot of graduates that are ready to go write, make income, and even better build their own brand, which is something I really love helping people do is build something that's their own thing that they can grow and grow and grow like I just did and have a seven figure exit. because that's possible (laughs) no matter where you came from so that's what I do at the content hacker and all of that is contenthacker.com of course to go see all those trainings Um, but I'm really excited to grow my goal is you know to make that an industry-leading platform where we help people really leave with skills because skills equal confidence when you have the skill you can put your fingers to that keyboard you know what the heck you're doing that's when confidence comes and that is really rewarding to see you know my school be able to do that for students what a fantastic note to leave this on julia i can't thank you enough for coming to join us on the show today we'll make sure that everybody that is listening and is watching this gets the opportunity to follow you and engage with you and there'll be some people out there right now going i didn't know that was possible so <laughs> you can do it and love I, it and i also i'm really grateful that you shared your story because i just mm. think that that w- what you do is inspiring and what you've achieved is inspiring you've been through you know if i was in a, in a pub in london right now explaining what you'd been through i'd, I'd say you've been to hell and back and mm. You know, yeah. an, an awful experience, something that I can't believe you could talk to me about with such a kind of like a positive head on, but obviously you've mm. lived it and I have I used to cry. <laughs> There'd uh, be tears coming down my face. Not anymore. I've healed. <laughs> good on you. 
But to go through what you went through, to then move forward, start a small business, grow that business, sell that business, then start another business mm. and have, honestly, as I'm sitting talking to you for the last hour, such a positive and joyful person to be around. I salute you. Mm. You're a fantastic human being and thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much, Spencer. You made my day. I'm going to write those words down, look at them every minute. <laughs> <laughs> So it's always important to mention people that you partner with and partners for the podcast are Najahi events and Najahi tribe. Now, Najahi sounds like an unusual word and it is, but it's Arabic for my success. And Najahi have brought some of the world leading public speakers, motivational speakers, inspirational leaders across to Dubai over the course of the years and Abu Dhabi, mind you. And Najahi brought, I don't know, people like Tony Robbins, ever heard of him? Okay, Nick Vujicic, no arms, no legs, no worries. Lisa Nichols, Prince EA, Jay Shetty, Alicia Keys, and people like this. And they bring them in and they run events. And from those events, we go and we learn from these incredible people. On top of that, they launched the Najahi tribe recently, where they have a collective of the world's greatest trainers that literally you can join, become a member of, take advantage of a training from all of these different people, like real experts in their field. I've got a sneaky suspicion I might be one of them as well. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully you will go and check them out for me because you enjoy these episodes of the podcast. And remember, it's always team effort and I can't do it without the support of these people. So go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I events.com. I'll see you soon.